please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And before I get you up uh, to read the text, I want to just take a few moments and refresh your memory. Uh, I've learned long ago that uh, I can't remember my own sermon Monday morning, and so I surely don't expect you (laughs) to remember what's been preached over the last uh, uh, month or so. So the Declaration of Independence, along with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, are all foundational documents for our nation. And together they express our ideas about uh, freedom and the wisdom of our founding fathers about how to order government so it doesn't take those freedoms uh, from us. And this little letter to the Galatians is like those founding documents. It proclaims freedom uh, for us if you are Christians and if you're a guest and someone who's uh, looking uh, on the outside at what we're doing here this morning. It is freedom uh, for the world because it announces and develops and applies the truths of the gospel. And the gospel is what makes Christianity, Christianity. Now the gospel's neither religion nor irreligion. It's not moralism and rule keeping, and it's not relativism and rule breaking. It's a third way, entirely different than either of these ways. Religion and irreligion are both the same because they're ways to save yourself to be your own Lord and Savior. Now, it's fairly obvious that the non-religious person is seeking to be their own Lord because they determine for themselves what's right and wrong, uh, what's true or real. And it's by their choices that they believe that they are gaining the life that they desire, that they are becoming a better person, or they're, become, they're beginning to have a better uh, life. And in so this way, they're seeking uh, to save themselves. The religious person who uses rules and morality and religion often does so to avoid sin. They don't need Jesus to save them. They think their rule-keeping and their rituals will save them, will give them the life that they seek. You see, they too are trying to save themselves. And this is in part why religion and morality are so deadening and make people hard. Because it distances them from intimacy with God. And often they don't see what's actually happening. Now, the last time I preached in the pulpit... Um, I sought to show that the gospel is a set of truths, and the truth could be summarized simply this way, that I am both sinful and deeply flawed, and at the same time by faith, I am loved and accepted because of Jesus. And we also saw that the gospel has a trajectory that it draws a line, a straight uh, line through all of life. And the way that we experience more of its life-giving power and its joy is to live in line with the gospel and to work out its implications in our daily living. 
This is true not just for us as individuals, but also true for us as a church collectively. A church that is in line with the gospel is experiencing freedom, joy, and power, and greater life. And those who are in it and participate uh, in such a church experience more and more of the life that Jesus intends for them, uh, whether it's for the first time or uh, again and again. Now, let me illustrate this just with uh, suffering. Religious and moral uh, people tend to think uh, that good people shouldn't suffer. Suffering comes to bad people. And because I'm good, God owes me a safe and comfortable life. And so their own experience of suffering is confusing for them. It doesn't match their expectations about how God should treat them. But irreligious people tend to be bitter against life or God when they suffer. And their suffering proves to them that there can't be a God. Or if there is, he's not good or strong. And the gospel's a third way. It says, because I'm sinful, I know that I don't deserve a good, easy, or pain-free life. And so I don't blame God. I don't become bitter or mad. And because I'm justified, I know that God is not treating me this way because of my sins. Jesus has borne uh, my sins. There's no double jeopardy. Once Jesus has taken my sins, uh, God does not punish me for them. And so I can take comfort that even if I can't make sense of what's happening, I know that God is up to something, up to something that's ultimately good, even if it's painful. Well, let's stand together. I want to uh, read from uh, Galatians 2. We stand in recognition that these are not uh, merely the words of men, but the inspired word of God. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, uh, be pleased to still our hearts and minds. Allow us to be present in this room, uh, to hear through the apostle uh, your very uh, voice, and grant that the one who's seeking uh, to bring uh, those words uh, alive uh, to develop them, uh, would help uh, be helped by your spirit. For we pray in Christ's name. Verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, that's the word that we get in line with, uh, it's to walk straight, in the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is the text we're going to look at this morning. It begins in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. Now, <clears throat> I want to be clear where we're going here this morning. So I want to unpack what's said here and make clear what's said in this very uh, compressed statement which is most likely Paul's summary of the conversation he had with Peter and Barnabas when he confronted them. And in order to do that, we need to look at four key words and phrases that Paul uh, uses. And then we'll put it all back together again and see uh, further what it means for our lives. So we might expect... Uh, that uh, these, these verses that I've just read to you would have quotation marks around them. That's what we would expect. But uh, that, wasn't, that isn't the case. In fact, we don't have quotation marks uh, in our Bibles at all uh, in the original manuscripts. But nonetheless, Paul here, as he writes, we is writing about Paul and Peter. Now, in verse 15, uh, he writes, we, that is Paul and Peter, were Jews by birth. In verse 16, we, Paul and Peter, as Christians know. And then in verse 17, when he says are once again, he's referring to the same people. Now, this text is both autobiographical and theological. And Paul uses a number of technical terms. And actually, most fields, in fact, many of the fields that you work in, have technical terms that outsiders don't fully appreciate. If uh, you go to a cabinet maker or even a skilled woodworker and want to have a, a, a drawer repaired, uh, he'll talk to you about joints, rabbited uh, and boxed, mitered and crisscrossed joints. And there's all whole, just a whole plethora of joints used in woodwork. Or if you were to go over uh, to Best Buy and talk to a knowledgeable person about purchasing another computer, you would get into a whole array of technical language about video cards and processors and various uh, kinds of memory. And, and so it is that Paul uses a special vocabulary to teach us about the gospel. Why do we need this vocabulary? Well, it's because the gospel is slippery. Now, if you wash dishes, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about uh, when I mention slippery. If we have guests over for Thanksgiving or Christmas, Nancy's mother's china comes out. It doesn't go into the dishwasher. 
It has to all be washed by hand. <laughs> uh, soapy water is slippery, and the glaze uh, on this china is very slippery. You have to work really carefully uh, to hold on to the plates uh, and uh, the uh, uh, glassware as you wash it. And the gospel is slippery because our hearts are slippery. We have trouble holding on to its truth. Its truths are counterintuitive. You see, in this passage I've read to you, you have Peter and Barnabas, who've been Christians for more than 15 years now. And here it is, they let go of the gospel. It just slips right out of their hands as they're having table fellowship. Uh, here, they're only having their meals with Jews, as if they had to keep kosher. And they're not eating with the Gentile Christians there in Antioch. They know the truth of the gospel, but they actually can't apply it to their lives. They can't make the connection between its truth and their life. And I've had this experience many, many times. And uh, when I woke up to how common this experience was in my life and realized that this is not just something that happens occasionally to me, about 25 years ago, I decided... I need to recover the gospel, and I've been seeking to do that ever since. Have you struggled with the gospel like me? Have you broken through so you have a hold of it? Well, one of the ways you can tell that you really have a hold of it is, is that you start to see how little you really get it. Now, you start to see that there are all kinds of areas in your life that you need to apply it. Forgiveness is a very simple part of the gospel. It's a truth that's easy to express. Uh, most Christian parents insist their children practice it with one another whether they mean it or not. But then when someone hurts you, forgiveness is hard. The gospel just slips right through your hands. Now, Luther was a monk, a Bible scholar, and a minister, and he talked uh, about how hard it was for him to get his hands on the gospel. He writes, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's words in Romans 1.17, where he says, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And only after much labor, he says, finally, I grasp it. And thereupon I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Luther came to see that it was not that the gospel was slippery, but his own uh, hands. Have you found the gospel is power? Have you broken through to its joy? Have you gotten to its joy which can't be diminished by the circumstances in your life. Now, if you're here as somebody who doesn't think the gospel has anything uh, to say to you, you're just, I don't need it, you're not interested in it, I want to ask you, how could you reach that conclusion without having really wrestled uh, with the gospel? I want to ask you, please engage uh, with me as I try to show you its central claims this morning. And in order to do that, we need a vocabulary to help us. And here is what's in that vocabulary in our passage. Righteousness, 
justified, crucified with Christ, and works of the law. And we're going to look briefly at each of them. Now, everybody is after righteousness. You don't have to be a religious person to want to be righteous. Everybody wants to be right. They want to look good. And so this is one of the key things in order to understand these words and get them just out of the theoretical realm to your own life. You have to see how righteousness actually works in daily living. It works something like this. Uh, Because I'm right, I don't listen. Why listen to people when you already know the right answer? Because I'm right, I complain. Other people have it wrong. God's wrong. I know what's best and right. Because I'm right, I boast. It feels great that others see just how right I am about all sorts of things. Because I'm right, I defend myself. Don't try to undermine my facade of righteousness, which I've been building for many years. Because I'm right, I attack and accuse. You're not as right as you think you are. Because I'm right, I'm harsh with others. They just don't have it together. There's something wrong with them. Because I'm right, I'm critical. People need my helpful correction for their improvement. And because I'm right, I gossip. I'm right about other people and their problems. In fact, the meaning behind many of the excuses we give really arises out of our desire to be seen as right, to be seen as righteous. Take this one, for example. I'm sorry, but you. What we really mean is it's really your fault. Or we say, my family was like that. What we really mean is if you think I'm bad, you should meet my... Or I didn't mean to do it. Uh, uh, You know, I, I I didn't mean to get caught. I was just being honest. Can't you take the truth? You're just too serious and too sensitive. Really, it's not my fault that you're offended here. Or nobody's perfect, and that includes you. Now, you see, you need to see in concrete daily life what it means to be right and righteous in order to grasp what the gospel has to say to us about it. Now, in English, and the way we use this word in English isn't entirely the way the Bible uses it. When we use the word righteous, we mean being good, morally upright. He's a good, righteous person. Or we say something like this. That's a righteous dip you've uh, made as an appetizer. We mean it's a really very good dip, right? But in the Bible, righteousness is about relationship. In my marriage, when Nancy and I get crosswise, which of course is always my fault, but when it happens, uh, I have a strong need to know that the distance that's happened in those moments isn't going to last. I need to know that we're right with each other. And the Bible speaks this way a lot. It begins with Adam and Eve, and as soon as they decide uh, to be their own masters to determine what's true and real and right and wrong, they felt naked and ashamed. And every relationship they had was out of sorts with God, with each other, with the creation itself, and even themselves. Or take your kids. 
you know, you want to show your kids and your grandkids that you love them. Why? Because uh, you want that relationship to be strong. You want it to be right. Now, the next word is justification. Paul uses it four times and three times in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. To be justified is a legal term. It comes from the courtroom. It means the judge declares you as innocent, which is the opposite of the judge saying you are condemned. Uh, to condemn someone is to find them guilty. The dictionary defines justification this way. It's the action of showing that something is right or reasonable. Uh, it's not about what happened. It's about how it is viewed. So let's say that uh, uh, we have special plans for the evening, and in fact we do uh, this Monday. Nancy's uh, sister and, and uh, husband are coming uh, to be with us, and we'll have our children, uh, one of our children and uh, her family with us. And uh, she says, dear, you need to be home at 5 o'clock, but I arrive at 6.30. Well, I walk in the door and I plead my case. And I tell her, I left in plenty of time, but you know how traffic is here in Washington, D.C. And there was a pileup on the Beltway as it started to rain. And my cell phone uh, was dead. And you see, it changes the way that my being late is viewed. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm late. Well, the gospel explains how it is that an unrighteous person can be accepted as righteous by God. We are justified by faith because of what Jesus did. God views you and declares you as innocent and righteous. God doesn't make you sinless and innocent. You're still a sinner. But he declares it for now and all eternity that you're right with him as if you'd never, ever fallen short or failed or sinned, as if you had given 100% to him all the time, every day, that you are righteous in all your relationships. It includes not just your relationship with God, but all your relationships, it means everything that God would ask of you on the horizontal is also covered by the righteousness that you receive by faith. It's just how can faith do that? Well, it brings us to Christ and him crucified. That explains how it is that we can have Christ's righteousness and not just his forgiveness. Now, this is truly amazing, and it's actually kind of hard to believe that when Christ died, you died if your faith is in Jesus Christ. 
If you're depending on Jesus to be right with God, then you are actually in Christ as he died upon the cross. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. Now, a lot of people in the average church think of the Christian life as something like this. I ask Jesus into my life, which means I'm going to try to live like Jesus now, and I need his forgiveness and his power. That is true, but it doesn't go deep enough. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, says this, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sinful or unrighteous. He took all our unrighteousness, all our failings, all the things that we did deliberately as well as unintentionally that broke God's expectations for us as human beings so that we could take all of Jesus' righteousness, who was holy and harmless and undefiled, who fulfilled every expectation that God could have of us as human beings. This took place in his death, and it becomes a reality in our experience when we trust him. The last uh, term that Paul uses is mentioned three times in verse 16, and it's the works of the law. These are more than what we often call the ceremonial law. It's more than keeping kosher, than being circumcised, and keeping the Sabbath. It's the entire law, including the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we call that the moral law. Now, the law is not bad. In Romans uh, 7, Paul tells us the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is with us. We are lawless. And the purpose of the law is to reveal our need for a Savior. It exposes us as uh, lawless. And you see, one of the problems when we don't get this right is we think, well, my law-keeping somehow contributes to my standing with God. Uh, Luther uh, put it, as only he could. He says, when you do offer up your law-keeping to God, you're just trying to placate God with your sin. You're trying to quench God's anger uh, toward uh, your failure to meet his absolute perfection with ultimately what's stained with sin. So Paul says the works of the law are a dead end if we want to be viewed as righteous. We cannot justify ourselves this way. We need to die to the law. And this is what happened when we were crucified with Christ. Paul says, we died to the law. So let's pull this together. And Paul does this in Romans 7 using the marriage illustration. But Paul says he had to die to the law when he became a Christian. And what he means is when he was formerly a Jew and a Pharisee, he worked like crazy to be righteous before God by observing all the details of the law and all the things that had been added in Judaism uh, to make sure he never broke any of them. But when he came to Christ, 
He had to die to the law in order to live to God. In other words, he's saying he had to stop using the law as a way to be righteous. As if he could, by being moral and obedient, be justified before God. See, in effect, what Paul's saying is this. When I was trying to earn my righteousness by obeying the law and deal with my sense of nakedness, my sense of unrighteousness, which is what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, and we experience it, I wasn't doing it for God. It was until I stopped trying to earn my own salvation, I was working for Paul that whole time. Do you see that? He says, through the law, I died to the law. I died to living according to the law. I died trying to get my own righteousness so that I might live for God. Look, here's a way to think about it. Suppose that uh, you're living with Aunt Nellie, and Aunt Nellie is fabulously wealthy. Now, she doesn't have any children, but she has lots of nieces and nephews, and so you're very attentive to her. You are living for her. Her every wish is your command. But what she doesn't know, in fact, she cannot know, is whether you're living for yourself so that you might gain the inheritance or whether you're actually living for her. You see, you might, on the outside, be doing everything possible for her. But the question is, why are you doing it? And that's what Paul's writing. This is an issue of motives. Well, there's only one way that she can know. And so Aunt Nolly comes down one day and says to you as you're busy in the kitchen, I want you to know the money's all yours. I can't change it. I've sent the wheel away. It's all yours. Absolutely all yours. That's the only way she's going to know. Because if that's the end of your caring for her and serving for her, she'll know you were doing it for yourself. You were doing it for the money. And that's what happens with us with the law. You see, until you know that you are accepted, until you know that you've been declared righteous now and for all eternity, you'll end up law-keeping in order to make yourself right. You'll actually be working for yourself so this is what Flannery O'Connor uh, put in the lips of one of her characters uh, when the character said, deep down inside he knew that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus is uh, to avoid sin. And that's what Paul is saying when he said, I was very religious, working for righteousness, but I was trying to be my own savior. I was avoiding God through my religiosity. I wasn't avoiding God as an example. I wanted him to be my example. I wasn't avoiding God as a helper. I wanted him to be my helper. But I was avoiding him as savior. I was avoiding him as the very thing he was. And so I was actually avoiding him. So let's pull it all together. And if you have your Bibles out, you might uh, follow along because I want to walk right through these verses one more time so you can see uh, what these terms mean in this conversation that Paul summarized. Paul says, Peter, 
You and I are Jewish by birth. We're not like those Gentiles who don't have the law, who've never heard of it, and so are ignorant, but are transgressors. No, as Christians, you and I both know that the only way to be justified, to be declared both not guilty and not condemned, but innocent and vindicated is by our faith in Jesus Christ. We know law-keeping, being moral is a dead end. This is what uh, David himself is pleading in Psalm 143 when he says, Don't bring me into your courtroom, O God, for no one can withstand your discerning uh, judgment. Uh, None of us are good enough to stand before you and meet your high standards. Verse 17, if trusting in Jesus we still sin, is Jesus an enabler of sin? No, we're responsible for our own actions. Then why become a better person? Do we need to return to the law to do that? Verse 18, to rebuild, that is to return to law keeping as a way to be justified and righteous and acceptable cuts against the very purpose of the law, which is to show us our need of Jesus. Once we see our need of a Savior and trust in him to go back to living as if we could through our obedience either earn or keep God's pleasure, either earn or maintain being right before him, either earn the declaration that we are just or maintain our justification, is in fact a transgression of the deepest purpose of the law, which is to expose our lawlessness and our need for a savior. See, it's a matter of motives. At heart, it's a matter of motives. Why do you obey? If you're obeying to have or maintain a right relationship with God, then you're actually being your own savior. You're undercutting the very purpose for which the law was given. Verse 19, I died to the law. I was in Christ as he died, I died. He was put to death for my sin so that the law has no claim on me. There's no double jeopardy. I'll never be condemned by the law so that I might live for Christ. You might live for Aunt Nellie if you got that illustration, (laughs) not for yourself. I was raised uh, by Christ, and so my motives in obedience are utterly uh, transformed. And then Paul ends with these uh, beautiful words. They're very personal. They're intensely uh, personal and private. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, if we only had one half of, and either one of these halves of what Paul says here, we either think that the Christian life was about being passive, after all, it says, I no longer live, it kind of sounds passive, 
Uh, uh, in other words, I no longer have to resist temptation. We could take it that way or put to death sin. I'll just wait for God to change my desires. Uh, uh, I, I'll just, I don't have to forgive right now. I'll just wait until I feel like uh, forgiving uh, somebody. And the words, I live, if we only had those, I live, then we might hear that it's all up to me by trying harder uh, to bring my ways in conformity uh, with God's ways. But no, I fight against sin dependent upon the life of Christ within me. It's not passive. It's not all up to me. I must fight, and the power to do that comes from Christ. So here's the bottom line. When God looks at us, if we've put our faith in Christ, he delights in us just as completely as he delights in Jesus Christ. He is delighted in you. He is not disappointed with you. He doesn't look at you and think, you don't measure up. After all I've done for you, how could you treat me this way? God doesn't look at you like that in uh, Christ. And so we're left with the truth that I'm still a sinner who's been declared not guilty and positively as righteous as Jesus is. I have his standing, and now I'm loved and accepted, and this transforms all the reasons for my obedience. It's not for me. It's not so you will think well of me. It's not so God will think well of me, for I already have these. These have been given to me through Christ. Even if you don't think well of me, nonetheless, God thinks well of me. It doesn't mean I don't sin. I do, and I have to acknowledge that and own that. But it never changes my standing and how God himself sees me. This table declares this amazing gospel uh, to us. And in just a moment, we will come to it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, some of what Paul writes here is often hard for us to grasp. And Lord, we acknowledge that we don't see our motivations as clearly as you do. And so where our motives are ultimately in our obedience for ourselves as if somehow we could make ourselves more acceptable to you. Reveal that to our hearts. And, uh, Father, be pleased to grant uh, that our uh, grasp of the gospel would increase, that our joy, our power, uh, our life, uh, would, we would have more and more of these through Christ who lived and died and was risen on our behalf. 